I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. This being the opening episode of the show, I want to state something right up front. I hope you disagree with me. Well, let me qualify that. Healthy disagreement is foundational to a functioning society. And if we're going to disagree, let's be the best versions of ourselves when we do. I certainly have my views, which are going to shape the direction of this show. But I'm not the same person I was five years ago, and I imagine you aren't either. So as we grow and learn and change, let's allow room for others to do so as well. Our first guest has some great ideas about how to do disagreements better. John Wood Jr. is a national leader for Braver Angels, a former nominee for Congress, former vice chairman of the Republican Party of Los Angeles County, and a noted writer and speaker on subjects including racial and political reconciliation. John, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be on. Now, I first heard about your organization, Braver Angels. It was Better Angels at the time, around the start of 2019, and I immediately knew I needed it in my life. Tell us about what Braver Angels means to you and how you came to be involved with the organization as its national ambassador. Okay, well, what Braver Angels means to me, you've given that a bit of a philosophical framing. Let me, let me just first remark on what Braver Angels is for anybody who doesn't know. Braver Angels is the nation's largest grassroots bipartisan, although you know, we're really sort of cross-multipartisan, but chiefly though bipartisan organization dedicated to the work of political depolarization, meaning creating uh, communication, uh, dialogue and ultimately uh, collaboration uh, between diff- between the different uh, the two different major sides of the aisle, and so this is something that we do on uh, to a degree working with uh, politicians and and uh, people who work in government. Uh, something that we do on college campuses. Uh, we work to a degree within uh, and with partners in the uh, in the media, but uh, predominantly. This is something that we do on the grassroots level. We are a membership organization, some 11,000 members who have paid dues to be members, um, and 50 local alliances, you can think of them as local bipartisan uh, chapters, distributed across the country. We have a variety of different uh, workshops that we execute uh, that are meant to sort of cultivate the skills necessary to communicate across the divide, to listen and communicate empathetically in individuals and groups. We have things called Braver Angels uh, debates that are meant to be constructive forums for debate over particular issues, emphasizing intellectual humility, uh, being open about our beliefs and experiences without trying to own and slash destroy uh, (laughs) the other party. Um, Our original workshop was something called a red-blue workshop, which in which we would take uh, small groups of reds and blues slash conservatives and liberals, bring them into a shared space so they could not, in this case, argue or debate, but speak from personal experience in terms of why they see politics the way they do through guided exercises. It is quite literally the application of marriage counseling to uh, techniques to uh, the relationships between Republicans and Democrats, right? And of course, we have our own fledgling media network. I'm the co-host of the Braver Angels podcast. We have a team of team of writers, social media crew, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a dynamic sort of organization. And I guess what it means to me is the sort of uh, catalyzing of a cross-cultural, cross-partisan uh, civic 
community, you know, at the center of which exists Brave Rangels formally as a sort of a small nonprofit organization. I mean, there's about seven or eight of us as, uh, you know, full-time paid staff, but overwhelmingly, we are a volunteer-driven organization. And uh, we've had national conventions, not this year, sadly, because of lockdown, but we've had national conventions in which hundreds of delegates paid to attend, to vote on, and uh, help draft, actually, our national uh, platforms, uh, which sort of outline our strategy and philosophy for political depolarization. We really try and model the type of civic culture that we seek uh, to uh, catalyze in the rest of America, a culture in which our essential sorts of uh, political relationships to each other are rested upon a foundation of civic trust, which itself is something that can only stem from a starting point of goodwill between the American people. We need to actually have a desire for one another's mutual benefit that is sincere and inwardly felt in order for us to build stable political structures on top of that. Without that, if we're in the midst of the tribal warfare mentality that we're in, uh, we commit to this race to the bottom in which all of the structures of society get pulled down. So we're trying to pay very particular attention to that core sort of, you know, to that core root of social stability and progress. And that is, at the end of the day, the relationship between you and your neighbor. So that's what Braver Angels means to me. You mentioned marriage counseling, and I, I think uh, that, that ties in perfectly well with uh, my next question. I think the personal and political are so closely intertwined. And you grew up as a Democrat. You now identify, I believe, as a Republican. Your mother is a liberal black Democrat hailing from what you describe as inner city Los Angeles. Your father, a conservative white Republican from Tennessee, though he did spend much of his childhood in L.A. You once said, I grew up explaining my father to my mother and my mother to my father. Can you explain or speak a bit on how this experience came to affect how you saw both your own personal identity in politics and our national concepts of capital I identity and capital P politics? <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's it's probably worth uh, mentioning the fact that my, uh, yeah, my, my, my parents, neither of my parents were particularly uh, political. My father was a Democrat until he became a Republican uh, later in life, around the time Obama was uh, nominated or or elected. Nevertheless, uh, there was striking cultural differences between them. Uh, So my father is uh, is older than my mother, 13 years older. He was born in 1950. My mom was born in 1963. Uh, My dad is from the South, originally was raised in Los Angeles, but I'll add to that that he was raised in uh, striking affluence. Uh, his father, Randy Wood, my grandfather, since passed, uh, Randy Wood owned the largest uh, independent record label in America uh, in the late 1950s called Dot Records. Interestingly, before that, he started a radio show sponsored by a mail order record shop he owned by the same name called the Randy's Record Shop. It was the first to, the radio show was the first to broadcast rhythm and blues and gospel music, basically black music to a national audience. But I say all that just to say that um, my father came 
in addition to being white, in addition to being older, in addition to being uh, to having southern roots, my dad uh, grew up uh, very much in the <laughs> with about as much privilege as a person <laughs> could uh, could have uh, as a you know as a young man. My mother, on the other hand, uh, grew up as I as you mentioned in uh, inner city Los Angeles. Um, you know that it, it, it still was, I think, relatively uh, uh, comfortable, but. Uh, you know, an area with many, many more struggles and with relatives who themselves had many more difficult uh, paths to, to deal with living in urban inner city life. And um, for me, I grew up in the midst of a culture sort of clash between them. My parents separated and ultimately divorced when I was pretty young. Uh, I was probably you know, seven, eight years old. And um, my um, my father uh, was always very much the traditionalist in our uh, household. Um, he really sort of emphasized to me the well, the importance of a lot of things, the importance of um, understanding that culture was at the root of American uh, greatness. Now, this gets a little complicated uh, because... He was not necessarily a social conservative in the in the typical sense, but having grown up in the heart of America's musical culture and having grown up uh, being a person who greatly admired the artistic and cultural contributions of American figures ranging from Andy Williams and Frank Sinatra to Duke Ellington and Sam Cooke, my, my father felt that the sophistication of American musical artistry represented the greatness of our culture and that declined with the moral relativism that entered into the music scene in part through the advent of technology in the recording process starting the 1970s and culminating with the sort of blasphemous you know uh uh kind of uh moral and, and artistic bankruptcy in his opinion of genres like you know his modern pop and so forth to be sure but particularly uh hip-hop and gangster rap and so forth um my uh you know, my mother wasn't particularly ideological but her uh well one of my uncles on my mother's side is uh Mac 10 uh from the West Side Connection uh which for anybody who doesn't know uh is a rap group that was uh, it was Ice Cube's group after Ice Cube uh left NWA and so forth and uh just you know the the, the pieties of kind of uh of a of a man from a more traditional kind of um something like a up, upper class waspish kind of you know sort of background i mean i hesitate to say wasp for certain reasons but you no know, just just to draw a comparison um the the sort of the sort of pieties of my father's kind of you know uh, upper class background mixed with a certain type of southern nostalgia on a certain level uh kind of clash pretty hard with the more raw sorts of realities that you know some folks at my mother's family were likely coming from in their uh experience um you know but they're even to the level that the way i uh it, my father would express concern that i would inherit the dialect uh that not so much my mother but some of my mother's relatives would employ sort of you know that's kind of a black idiomatic uh dialect that my dad was afraid wouldn't uh serve me uh very well in the world necessarily and 
And my father's a person who loves black culture uh, very deeply and, you know, married, uh, married into a black family, so on and so forth. But my dad also had deep concerns that many cultural aspects in the black community led to bad outcomes for black people. He saw the sad turn in American music in general and black music in particular is leading to that in many respects. And so he was always trying to sort of safeguard, I think, the kind of purity of my own values so that I wouldn't, you know, uh, do some things that would land me in jail later in my life, which, you know, he saw as happening too often to so many uh, young black men. And he wanted to keep me and my brother from that kind of uh, uh, outcome. So, you know, some people may have all sorts of reactions listening to that, but. Uh, it caused me to sort of consider the different uh, cultural context in which I understood different uh, my different relatives from an early age. And um, I'll just say very briefly by way of illustration that I had three native environments in my life growing up, and I didn't realize how profoundly unusual this was until much later in life, or you know, fairly, fairly yeah, until pretty late in life. And um, I, my um, over weekends, I would go and I would visit my uh, mother's family uh, in parts of inner city Los Angeles. Uh, my, you know, uncle, you know, aunts, cousins, grandparents, what have you. Uh, yeah, I would walk around. I hang out with my uncle, and you know, we tell my mother that we weren't gonna go anywhere. Uh, we shouldn't be, and you know, that was oftentimes <laughs> uh, misleading. We'd go places where we knew if we were we- wearing the wrong color shoelaces, you know, we <laughs> we risked not getting out of a certain neighborhood. We'd get on the bus and we'd go places where you know, cigarettes and beer cans and graffiti, and you know, folks who were maybe uh addled on drugs and just kind of walking around aimlessly uh was kind of kind of the norm just kind of you know roaming the geography of south central um which uh you know was always uh, ultimately you know fine but again there are places you knew that you shouldn't step foot into and the most dangerous places we would try to avoid because my uncle always knew where to go and where not to go. Um, over holidays, I'd go spend uh, time with my father's relatives, uh, including my grandparents in La Jolla, who uh, had a house with a million dollar view of the ocean um, right off the water, a couple blocks down the street, probably from uh, Mitt Romney's house, the one with the uh, car elevator that they used to talk about in the 2012 campaign. Um, strikingly different uh, environment. But from day to day, I grew up in multicultural middle-class Culver City uh, in my, uh, you know, while my parents were still married and in our three-color household, my mom being black, my dad being white, me and my brother being <laughs> what we call tan at the time. That was, you know, what I was originally, what my father originally uh, told me. I, I asked him when I was five, I said, you're Mom's black, right? He said yes. I said you're white, right? He said yes. I said so. What does that mean? Make me? And he, he said you, you, oh, you can't tell. And he pulled my, took my hand and held it up to me and turned the back of my hand uh, so I could uh, look at it. And he said you're tan. I said really. He said yeah. So for from the ages of five to seven or so, my self-professed racial identification was tan until I realized that wasn't technically a thing, you know. Um, but yeah, so you know that's just sort of. The broad kind of context, I think, for how I um, how I grew up and how I was sort of comparative cultural analysis was kind of, I guess, required of me um, from very from very early age. Yeah, I think 
your story, obviously, in a lot of ways is unique, but I think in other ways, there are a lot of common touchstones there, at least ones that I can personally relate to. So the Armenian side of my family, my mom's side of my family, um, was kind of my first introduction to anything resembling wealth. There were no car elevators, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, but you know, there were, there, were, there were people who were worth millions of dollars, and though they lived modest lives and didn't, didn't necessarily flaunt what they had, um, it was definitely a lot more than, than what my mom, my dad, my sister, and I had growing up in kind of the uh, Silicon Valley area of Northern California. And then my, my dad's side of the family, kind of the, the white rural side, um, was a completely different uh, world altogether. You know, shotguns and ATVs, and it wasn't uncommon to see, you know, beer cans and open fields. And, you know, it's interesting. You, you had mentioned that in reflecting on the advice that your father was passing down or the concerns that your father had about potential influences, I, I can understand why, why people would hear something like that and, and bristle. But I don't think that topic necessarily needs to be racialized because I heard very similar stories of my own when I was in certain white rural environments um, where it wasn't uncommon for my mother or father to pull me aside and calmly and politely tell me that there were certain behaviors or certain things that um, I might be see I might see being done or um, certain ways of, of living and they weren't they were trying to speak without judgment um, but I could tell even at a young age of six or seven or eight years old that they were trying to steer me in a direction that was not the direction that they were witnessing. And I, you know, I, I think that that's, I'm just reflecting now that I think it's a, it's a shame that that sort of thing necessarily can be controversial because I think that's a, that's just a parental instinct. Yeah. Now, of course, sometimes it can, it can be overtly racialized, but not always. But speaking of your father's background, he, as you said, is originally from Tennessee. Currently, I, I suppose, identifies as Republican, came from a, a more, I, I suppose, conservative stock than your, your mother did. But well, you, you know, I, I should say on that point, that's probably true uh, on the basis of the generational difference, primarily, uh, my grandfather Randy Wood was a Kennedy Democrat. The Wood family was proud Kennedy Democrats. They were uh, delegates to he and my grandmother were delegates to his uh, convention in 1960. Um, and so, um, you know, f for the time, they were, I think, pretty uh, liberal or uh, progressive in their racial politics. But having said that, you know. There was uh, resistance, uh, certainly, uh, to my father marrying my mother um, in my um, in the in the Wood family. Um, by the time I was old enough to be conscious of my grandparents, they were, I think, totally past it. You know, I remember nothing but love for my grandfather and my my from grandpa and granny. Um, but uh, you know, there was still, even though my grandfather, I believe was a man who would have embraced a, a more kind of forward looking uh you know and like i said he, he made his bones in part lifting up black music um you know in the uh in, in the record business and he always had a great respect for black people that's where my dad's own love for black culture comes from originally um but you know grandpa was still a man of his generation with certain attitudes and himself entirely you know i mean reared in 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 Tennessee and you know the south of the 30s and 40s and so forth um so on that level yes i mean you would say that they're more more conservative but my dad's embrace of a more kind of you know uh reagan to tea party to now trump sort of you know lineage of conservatism is a bit more recent 
Speaking on your your grandparents, you know, relationship to your parents' marriage, while I was researching, I came across a rather interesting and, and startling fact. So in 1958, uh, only about 4% of Americans approved of black-white intermarriage, which I guess looking at our history isn't all that surprising. Mm-hmm. In 2013, it was up to 87%. But conversely, in 1958, 33% of Democrats and 25% of Republicans wanted their child to marry someone in the same party. Mm-hmm. But by 2016, of Democrats and 63% of Republicans felt that way. Mm -hmm. As our tolerance as a nation for, you know, interracial marriage has gone up, our tolerance for inter-party marriage has declined. Mm -hmm. And how do we empathize and connect with those who we don't want to invite into our own families? So, so there are different histories, obviously, with um, respect to our racial polarization and then kind of growing tolerance of each other across racial lines. Although, I mean, this gets so complicated because on the one hand, we could tell ourselves a story where racism becomes dramatically diminished from the period of time that you reference, according to the very sorts of statistics that you reference, right? On the other hand, the kind of uh, implicit bias and systemic racism narrative would suggest that racism has actually either remained it remains as bad or has become worse since that <laughs> period of time. And so I don't know how deep you want to get into any of that, but let's stick with the partisan point for a moment. The thing that was the case in the 1950s, which is in 60s, which became less and less the case in the 70s and 80s and is not at all the case now, is that um, in the 50s and 60s, and well, prior to that as well, Several things. The basic thing is that Republicans and Democrats were sort of ideological, ideologically somewhat heterodox within the parties themselves. Uh, you had in the Democratic Party um, sort of, you know, more liberal uh, New Deal sorts of Democrats whose you know focus was on you know sort of uniting the working class and building out the social safety net uh, in the same party with, uh, you know, sort of socially conservative Southern Democrats or Dixiecrats who shared some of the same policy aims, but who wanted to maintain the, you know, sort of the apartheid state of the uh, Jim Crow South and uh, may have tended to be more uh, religiously oriented uh, in general. In the Republican Party, uh, you had a more sort of conservative, you know, business-oriented class, which was, I think, probably largely concentrated in New England and in the Northeast, uh, interestingly. Uh, Interestingly uh, enough, uh, alongside, you know, Republicans, uh, like, you know, maybe you could argue Everett Dirksen and uh, Illinois and uh, other folks who still sort of saw themselves in the lineage of uh, Abraham Lincoln and uh, saw themselves as kind of George Romney, Mitt Romney's father would have been a good example of this sort of Republican um, governor of Michigan, uh, who saw themselves as being uh, forward-looking on uh, matters of race, even as they were generally more sort of capitalist in their in their orientation. And so what all this meant was that you didn't have the sort of tribal animosity between the political parties, because in one way or another, um, you know, Adlai Stevenson as a Democrat would have been, you know, more progressive in his racial politics and found common cause with a number of, with a number of, uh, you know, Republicans on this, on this level, whereas Barry Goldwater would have had a constitutionally conservative interpretation that would have and did indeed appeal to many Southern uh, 
Southern Democrats who didn't want to expand the powers of the federal government to advocate for civil rights. You had ideological sort of through lanes in which liberals and conservatives in both parties, roughly speaking, uh, would connect with each other. And therefore, the party differential was not the thing that uh, stigmatized anybody in that context. But, you know, particularly moving through the 1960s, and once you come out of that, you had a sort of an ideological sorting of the party uh, of the parties, which uh, or the American people into the parties uh, for various reasons, which wound up with a situation where if you were left of center, you were increasingly Democrat. If you were right of center, you were increasingly Republican. And I think that when you introduce the shift in uh, the news landscape, the media landscape, to where suddenly come the 1980s, you have CNN and the 24-hour news cycle. Uh, you get not long after that, you get Rush Limbaugh, the advent of talk radio into the 90s, you get Fox News, and now we've got social media, so on and so forth. And suddenly there are these huge markets to appeal to people squarely on the basis of their partisan affiliation based on their ideological disposition. Well, you know, in that period of time, too, the political parties themselves start to rely on this idea of marketing themselves, targeting themselves towards people squarely on the basis of their being, you know, conservative and therefore Republican, liberal and therefore Democrat. And suddenly the incentives of the parties, of the media begins to drill into polarization, right? In other words, we can gain power for and votes for our party. We can gain ratings for our network if we target folks on the basis of this narrower sort of political identity, as opposed to you know uh, trying to speak a language that can appeal to folks to one degree or another across the kind of party spectrum by lifting up whatever is more kind of universal to Americans. Which isn't to say that politics hasn't always been divisive; it has been, but just the presupposition that you know we're really just aiming at our people here in an explicit partisan ways just much more pronounced coming out of the 19 uh, coming out of the 1960s and so to your question how do we invite how do we empathize with people who we wouldn't want in our home it has to begin with a recognition of the fact that there are i think some more deeply shared, first of all, deeply shared interests that exist between the American people, as well as I would argue more deeply shared values that if we were to reacquaint ourselves with these things should make each other more familiar to us. That's the basic starting point to uh, answering, uh, answering your question. Um, but I think a level deeper, we also want to come to the point of remembering that satisfaction in life in general and in the American experience and particular perhaps I think has to has to itself rest on the understanding that it is much easier to be happy to be prosperous as an individual or a community if you are at peace with your neighbor and therefore embracing that as an actual project is something that ought become a priority uh, in our thinking when we realize that you know that psychological kind of state of you know harmony socially speaking is practically necessary to everything else that we do but it's also inwardly liberating uh, as well so okay uh the key to prosperity and happiness is being able to make peace with your neighbor and i think why that is such a beautiful sentiment but why it also fills me a bit i suppose with hmm, dread <laughs> when i when i hear it isn't because the sentiment is incorrect, but rather it seems that especially over the last 20 years with the acceleration of things like social media, 
You know, I, I once heard this phrase that there was never a better time in all of human history to be an introvert, right? Because you, <laughs> now I'm an extrovert. So, yeah. you know, I, social media is great, but, uh, you know, I would be fine without it. But what that joke gets at is that you can be completely by yourself. You can be staring at your phone or at your computer. You can be inside your house. You can never leave and you can scream at your, your political opponents or your friends and family from the comfort of your own couch. And it seems to have accelerated the atomization of American culture and American society that you could say was already in effect with the creation and expansion of suburbs uh, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And then social media kind of just took that and ran with it. And it is not uncommon for people of my age. I'm in my 30s. It's not uncommon for, and I believe you're about 33, 34? 33. 33. This is probably going to ring true in your life as well. I'm, I imagine you've probably heard this the same thing from some of your, your friends and colleagues that I know a lot of people who don't know a single neighbor. Oh, yeah. I'm talking in apartment complexes. I'm talking where someone might be only a few feet away from the, from the next door. And that is so far afield from the stories of my mother's childhood growing up in Queens, where mm -hmm. my mom and her sister, after their parents got divorced, lived in, lived in Queens in a, uh, you know, the, the, the three Armenians in a predominantly Jewish apartment complex. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but they, they knew everyone. My, my grandma knew all the parents there. They knew her. My mom and, my, and her sister knew all the, the kids running around the hallways. And that seems almost like a fantasy today. And so I, I wonder, how do we get to where I think many of us want to go, which is, is to feel that happiness, to feel that prosperity in knowing and perhaps even loving our neighbor mm. when it seems like we also don't either want to take the time, don't have the time, don't prioritize taking the time to getting to know them. Yeah. So in addition to everything that I just laid out in terms of the uh, perverse polarizing incentives of the um, you know political and media structures, et cetera, I mean, you're pointing squarely at just kind of the structural nature of our reality at present and how it impacts our, um, how it impacts our, our social, uh, our social uh, uh, predilections, I guess, or even lack thereof. I mean, yeah, I take your point on the um, sort of congregating in, in suburbs and so forth. And but, yeah, the technological aspect of it, we are so much more comfortable, particularly the younger you get, I think, on our cell phones than we are in uh, physical reality, or at least it seems that way. And um, yeah, I'm familiar with this, you know, phenomenon of us not knowing our neighbors. You know, I um, before I ran for office, so I was a nominee for Congress in um, 2014. I was the youngest active nominee for Congress uh, in California in that elective election cycle. I say active because there was one person younger than me, but she got uh, pregnant and never actually campaigned. Um, I remember uh, uh, before I started running, I thought, you know, it'd be a shame for me to run for office and uh, not really know my neighbors because I didn't know my neighbors, you know, lived here in uh, this neighborhood in South LA for, you know, uh, few years at that point and i realized like you know aside from the people who lived in my own like duplex I, I didn't really know hardly anybody and so 
I went around the block. I went up one side of the street and down the other. And basically I knocked on people's doors and I said something along the lines of, Hey, how you doing? Uh, my name is John. I said, I'm sorry to, sorry to bug you. I said, my name is John. I, I, you know, I live just down the street at the intersection uh, there. And uh, I just realized that, you know, I've seen you uh, come and go. I've been here for, you know, a year, year or two. And I realized I, I don't even, I still don't actually uh, know your name. Never introduced myself. So I just wanted to come by, uh, say hello, tell you who I am, let you know that if you ever need to borrow a, you know, egg or a cup of sugar or something like that, I'm just, I'm just a little way down the street. And uh, <laughs> the reactions from people was really interesting because they were mixed. Some some people were like, "Okay, thank you," sort of nervously. Some people, uh, you know, didn't respond at all. Other people said, sort of breathed a sigh of relief and said, "Oh, thank you," because people were so, you know, uh, like, "Well, who's this person at my door?" One guy stepped out of his door and pulled me in a hug, and he said, "Man, he said you doing what people used to," and he, you know, <laughs> gave me this, gave me this big embrace. There's an added dimension there because, you know, South L.A. people are a little bit more, uh, probably even a little bit more distrustful than they would be in other areas just because, you know, of the surrounding context. But, um, but yeah, no, that's a thing uh, across the board. And so I think when we look at this question of how do we reestablish kind of the bonds of community, um, we have to accept the fact that a certain fairly significant part of our day-to-day experience and social experience has now been uploaded you know we have to figure out a way to do this that on the one hand i think does emphasize kind of a rehabilitating of our in-person relationships but we also have to figure out ways of being more communal online because that's not going to go away and of course the nature of social media is such that it makes anti-social creatures out of uh, so many of us but um, part of the great thing about Braver Angels' work is that, for one, you know, our, our model has been to get people together in physical space until the lockdown uh, hit. Now, with the lockdown, everything has had to sort of transition uh, online via Zoom. And, uh, you know, we're at, in different parts of the country. We're maybe starting to do some things in person again, although not much yet. Um, but you know, there are formats that, you know, we have developed and we're not the only organization doing this sort of thing. Listen first, uh, uh, living room conversations, uh, other folks uh, are out there. But um, there are ways in which we can use, one, face-to-face technology uh, to create, to set the stage for really meaningful impact in, in conversations between people. Um but on the more sort of scalable question of just social media and so on and so forth itself, I think that I should say that, you know, I have wonderful experiences, even on Twitter, connecting with people. Well, I connected with you on Twitter, um, but um, with a wide range of folks, I think that it is possible, in fact, to sort of, and this may happen in an organic and deliberate sort of way um you know i mean i try to deliberately model a way of being on social media where i connect with people uh trying to sort of see where it is they're coming from when they disagree with me and i try and demonstrate a sort of a lightheartedness and a humor with my critics and folks who would attack me to show people that hey as long as we're not taking uh, ourselves too seriously we can wade through the trolls in order to get to the people who really have uh, a desire for connection or something, you know, meaningful to say. 
And the more people who come to be comfortable doing that, the more the broader kind of like the, the lowest common denominator of social etiquette on social media can begin to shift. And I actually think that that will likely happen over time because the consequences of our social polarization are such that I think it'll be devastating enough and already is to wake people up to the need for this social shift. And so while it's so easy to lament the vast trollerism in the in the uh, social media landscape, that doesn't mean that the collective organism of humanity is not adaptable even in that space. It's a new space, so it might take a minute. Uh, but I think that you can see a cultural shift there that is organic alongside the sort of deliberate mechanisms of facilitating connection that Brave Angels and other folks are pioneering uh, in such a way that opens up the sort of the pathway for imagining that we could have an online culture that in that uh, be, in many respects uh, comes to make room for a more communitarian sort of sort of ethos and that that's just something that's going to have to grow over time alongside some of these other things that we're going to need to do to restore community uh, in the physical space. So the empathy building project is important, but it is important across both the physical and the digital domain. And I think that there's some reason to be hopeful on all fronts. I certainly hope so. And to anyone, just to leapfrog off that, uh, who wants some positivity in their Twitter feed, I highly recommend at John R. Wood Jr. I'm going to interject this tweet in here, even though it's kind of apropos of nothing, because it, it, it's a sentiment that's expressed so rarely these days. You wrote, uh, I don't hate Donald Trump. Uh, I don't hate Hillary Clinton. I don't hate people. We start off as flawed human beings who were then shaped by flawed human institutions. Social forces help make us who we are. I hate injustice, however, because I love justice. And that's a different attitude. That is, uh, <laughs> whenever I, I, when I see your tweets uh, in my feed, it's like, uh, it's like negativity, negativity, negativity. Oh, a John tweet. <laughs> Speaking of um, kind of leapfrogging off of that, that tweet and, and how we oftentimes we come to perceive people across the political spectrum as almost avatars of the politicians we hate the most mm -hmm. or the, the politicians we have the most animosity for. Right. And you've mentioned that the current media climate presents Americans on either side of the political divide as funhouse mirror versions of themselves. Can you expand on that thought? The tendency is, particularly if you are patronizing a particularly sort of partisan uh, outlet or, you know, YouTube or, or pundit or what have you. Uh, yeah, the tendency to, is to see somebody who is very much committed to, you know, the uh, program of the progressive Democrats or the conservative Republicans. Uh, the tendency is to see, uh, see them on one side as being there for, you know, de facto, uh, de facto Marxists or, you know, de facto uh, uh, militant radicals, or on the other hand, de facto fascists or uh, racists. Everyone today is a Marxist or a fascist. Everyone. Exactly. Uh, and so, um, it was, so it was funny. I, I said that my parents weren't actually that political, but you know, um, one one funny thing I don't talk talk too much about is that my my um, the political people who I grew up with in my family were my father's sister who is very much a progressive, uh, you know, liberal, progressive Democrat, uh, my dad's older sister, and my mother's older brother, uh, who is a conservative Republican, you know, but black conservative and so forth. And uh, my uncle Daryl, he was the one who sort of imbued me with my love of uh, Lincoln and um, 
back when I was still a Democrat, my, my aunt, uh, Linda, she was the one who, uh, introduced me to, uh, Barack Obama and was the one who I would sort of call and talk to about politics, uh, every, every day. Um, and, uh, if I were to judge them through the lens of that kind of media, you know, distortion, that funhouse mirror, uh, prism, I'd have to look at my auntie as, you know, uh, as hating America. And I'd have to look at my uncle as being an uncle Tom, you know? Um, and, uh, so yeah, but, but again, just back to my earlier point, uh, yeah, I'd have to look at my uh, father as a racist and, you know, um, all that. Um, but there's a market for that kind of, uh, fun house mirrorism. There's a market for that kind of distortion. And, um, you know, it doesn't allow us to see the genuine sorts of moral foundations at play in people's political concerns. I mean, whatever you think about the democratic program at heart uh, and the progressive ideology more specifically, uh, at heart uh, on the social front, um, it tends to spring from a recognition of the fact that there is a history in this country which impacts our present within which uh, structures in society from business uh, to uh, politics to religion, etc., have placed certain groups of people uh, in disadvantaged uh, positions and that people have had to band together on the basis of their common interests as laborers uh, as marginalized identity groups in order to achieve uh, opportunity and uh, equality, that is true historically. And uh, I, I don't, and you know, I, and I think that there's certainly reason to think that it is true to one degree or another uh, today. I mean, you know, the, it's, and how could that, how could that not be true? It is human nature for us, uh, whether consciously or unconsciously, to tend to, when we are in positions of power, build up systems in ways that, you know, sort of uh, safeguard uh, our interests because, well, you know, why would we not? But when you have an identity kind of, you know, consistency to a dominant group that, again, even if it's not deliberate, which in so much of American history, it actually, perhaps it, it actually is deliberate, but even so, um, you know, uh, the inevitability of that sort of thing is worth taking on board while also recognizing the fact that on the other end of that, there is this reality where conservatives who believe in a meritocratic uh, uh, conception of America, who believe in these ideals of liberty, in the value of tradition uh, anchoring our values uh, in the sanctity of sort of our constitutional founding. Of course, you know, liberals, I think many liberals at least believe in that, believe in that too. But when you look at sort of the conservative moral, moral foundations here, an insistence on, on the rule of law, how can you argue with the, with the um, idea that uh, ultimately, you know, life is such as to where if you're going to, have things of value uh, in a nation or a community that can, you know, generate wealth, prosperity, and opportunity uh, for all people. There needs to be an emphasis on individual responsibility. There needs to be an emphasis on our cultivating our own abilities to do things and build things for ourselves. 
to build structures that in turn retain their integrity because we're willing to respect the laws and the boundaries that allow those things to exist, right? Um, rather than expecting that one can always just sort of redistribute all of the power and wealth and opportunity in a society without any particular kind of sensitivity towards the process by which these things were built, even beyond, you know, exploitation and oppression and whatnot, because that's not the whole story of what is built America, the sort of, you know, you might say romanticized or mythologized sort of ideas of, you know, the pioneering settlers who came here and built lives for themselves from nothing using just faith and industry and a belief that they could have a better life in a hostile climate, so on and so forth. Well, you know, look, the background of genocide and oppression is all there for sure. But on the other hand, like, yeah, these people who founded the country, these were hardworking people who braved incredible sorts of obstacles in order to start a life here. And with the founding fathers in particular, I mean, with, you know, folks like, you know, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, those types of folks, these were legitimately brilliant philosophical and political intellects who established a, sort of a structure by which people with dramatically, you know, uh, oppositional ideological and philosophical frameworks could actually translate serious uh, political and philosophical and cultural tension and even uh, even uh, hostility to some degree into actual progress for an increasingly uh, diverse uh, country of people. Um, and, uh, you know, diverse relative to the standards of the time, but still that basic structure has held intact all the way up into now, right? It may be teetering, it seems, but it is held intact basically all the way to this very moment. And so, you know, that conservatives would want to preserve those attitudes, values that seem to be, you know, at, at the core of maintaining that, yes, why wouldn't they feel that way, you know? So the question for us, therefore, becomes, well, you know, how is it that we can see the ultimate harmony of these different moral uh, foundations, these different sorts of philosophical and experiential concerns across the divide so that we're not putting ourselves in the false position of having to choose between sacred things, you know, because all of these things are sacred and all of these strains of experience, uh, I think, are ultimately, uh, you know, valid and legitimate, even if they don't always produce particularly rational uh, attitudes or actions from the people who are animated by them politically in the moment. Um, but how can we change that? How can we channel these uh, energies into a constructive vision of our present and our future uh, that melds these perspectives uh, into something that is into something that is uh, integrated, uh, constructive, and honoring of the vast diversity of all of our people in a communal sort of in a communal sort of way? That's you know again that that is kind of in a more fully fleshed out way the empathy project in the context of saving America from the structural level on down to the individual level in terms of preserving the integrity of our uh, relationships at, at at bottom you know uh, to be able to do that and um, that um, you know that that is just the imaginative pathway that I think we need to we need to take. If we're going to preserve an America that has all of these different things uh, in the background, but that now needs to reconcile them more effectively than we have ever done before. 
one of the reasons why I think Braver Angels has a real has a real shot at improving our political discourse. And one of the reasons I also wanted to do the show, I saw a article, I want to say from either last year or the year before in the Atlantic that talked about the exhausted majority. Mm. The average American, whether they're conservative or liberal, is a lot, I think really is a lot closer to each other than their quote unquote representatives in the media are, right? So you'll have someone on the left, you know, in 2020 saying, we want to completely abolish the police. You know, there's that article that was in the New York Times not too long ago that basically said, yes, we are serious when we say we want to abolish the police. And then there are people on the right side of the aisle who will say, well, the, you know, the answer is just comply. You know, all you have to do whenever you get into a, a situation with a police officer, if you only just comply. And of course, you know, I come from a, a family that, uh, especially my father's side of the family, it's a lot of cops, a lot of cops, a lot of veterans. And I have a great deal of respect for what they do. And there are a lot of good police officers out there. But if the key were always, if you just only complied, mm-hmm. and that would, that would solve every potential issue systemic uh, in policing, even in America today, I, I, you know, I think it would, it, would, it would be a much easier solve. But there's that exhausted majority in the middle who, who, can, who can agree that there are real problems in, in policing, but whether they're no-knock warrants or you know, issues of police brutality in which um, you have a, a person who is complying or a person who maybe even isn't complying but is, is, is not violent. I think that there's a lot of ways in which Americans can agree on a lot of things, and yet their representatives, and I, use, I do the heaviest air quotes <laughs> I can possibly do when I say that, in the media, don't represent us. I think that perhaps the biggest obstacle Um, And you're going to have to give me a little bit of runway here on this question. I think the biggest obstacle Braver Angels has to overcome, um, and I'm going to get a little dark uh, because I I have faith that you can pull me out of here, is perhaps an insurmountable one, right? And and I think that this this problem is, is that even when Americans, when they can agree on a story, are actually not that far apart. I think that Americans are living increasingly in entirely separate realities depending on their political proclivities, right? So the list of events with competing realities is long and it's getting longer. So there's Covington, right? Kenosha, Russiagate, Jacob Blake, Brett Kavanaugh, whether the OK hand sign is a secret white supremacist hand signal. Mm. It's to a point now where before one can even have a discussion with someone about a given topic, one must first figure out covertly or overtly where the boundaries of the person's reality are, right? So just take, for instance, in 2015, Obama's Department of Justice virtually made the case that Derek Wilson shot Michael Brown uh, either in self-defense or at least it was a justified shoot, right? And then in 2019, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren state publicly that Wilson murdered Brown in cold blood. Mm. So these Mm. days, it seems, one simply cannot point to the sky and say, it's blue, let us discuss the sky. We must first ask the other person, what color do you see the sky as? And so as we lose so much time and so much goodwill and energy litigating the sky's color that we barely have time to discuss the sky. And so I wonder with Braver Angels and and in our larger discourse, how do we bridge the divide if we can't even agree that there is a divide? Mm, Right. Yeah. The divide in uh, Scott Adams, uh, who I've talk to on my podcast uh, has this great analogy of sort of the American people are all sitting together sort of in the same movie theater maybe, but we're looking at like two different movies on a split screen and thinking that we're seeing the same film, right? And so it's just uh, another way of uh, of framing your point. But um, 
The truth, therefore, is that we need to become better acquainted with the storylines that one another are consuming beyond just sort of a pejorative, like, okay, I, I know what they're talking about on Fox via MSNBC, and therefore through the, you know, series of pejorative, like, you know, representations of what the other side is talking about, I can assume that I know what it is they, what it is they think. In the Braver Angels, um, in our Red Blue workshop, the marriage counseling uh, workshop that I mentioned before, uh, marriage counseling, so to speak, um, one of the exercises that we uh, that we have uh, in that is something called a stereotypes exercise, where each side will list uh, a number of stereotypes the other side holds about them. For conservatives, and there's generally some consistency to this, for conservatives, they almost always start with the idea that they're racist, and then it may go to the idea that they hate poor people, that they're anti-science and so forth. Whereas uh, folks on the left may say, oh, well, you know, conservatives think that we hate America, they think that we mooch off the government, uh, uh, we want to take everybody's rights away, we want to take everybody's guns away, so on and so forth. Each side will list those stereotypes and then present to the other side, you know, how they see the other side as seeing them. Um, but what they'll also, what we also ask them to do is to remark on the kernels of truth in those stereotypes. And so conservatives will frequently say, well, we're not racist, certainly not in general, but there are some racist elements in our party. And when they say that, they generally say, and we need to be, you know, uh, vigilant and more adamant about making sure that those people don't have a place in the Republican Party. You'll have Democrats who will say that, well, you know, we are not, we're hardworking Americans too. Uh, we, you know, we, we work for, we're hard for our families and uh, we provide for ourselves, but there are some people who do game the system, some people who do exploit uh, public benefits, and we should be less tolerant uh, of that. We have an exercise called a fishbowl exercise, which even more uh, uh, to the point gives uh, one one side the opportunity to have an internal conversation about what they like about their side and what they would criticize about it while the other side listens quietly from outside of the fishbowl, right? So conservatives will talk about why they're conservative, why they vote Republican, but also their problems with the Republican Party. And, you know, you'll hear instances where they will say things where, as a matter of fact, I agree with the left on this X, Y, and Z. And then the side switch places. The reason I'm going through all this is because what we rarely have an opportunity to do in our society right now is to bear witness to the internal conversations that take place on the other side where vulnerability and humanity are actually revealed. Because even if we're having some, so if we're only getting our information about the other side through partisan media, then we're you know at, at a loss to begin with. But even when we do have interactions with people on the other side of the aisle, so often at times it takes place in a context where whether it's at school or work, given the polarized environment, everybody's defenses are up, everybody's walls are up, and everybody needs to be right because they can't afford to be seen as being wrong. If you know, if I if I lose this argument with my conservative neighbor, I, Donald Trump is one step towards re-election, and therefore the Holocaust that will ensue, you know, winds up falling on my on my shoulders, whatever the vice versa is. Um, the uh, therefore, though, um, what needs to happen, and ultimately what we're working towards at Brave Angels, uh, in concert, I think, with other partners and, you know, eventually serious capital, I think is going to need to come into this, but there needs to be, I think, um, 
there needs to be a landscape in or an architecture in our larger media structure, which I think there is space to really begin this in the digital sphere to start with, um, wherein we're able to sort of build up, we're able to build up sort of the architecture for being able to see the lived experience and the internal reality of folks on the other side in an empathetic way needs to be something that comes through in media content and movies and in in YouTube videos and podcasts uh, in a a way that's able to touch the millions with, uh, I think, you know, open windows for understanding just who this guy with the MAGA hat is and, uh, you know, in Jacksonville, Florida or Natchez, Mississippi really is, or just who this person with the BLM shirt, uh, you know, in, in the Bronx or South Central Los Angeles, you know, really is, you know, what has, what has she lived through? Uh, what has he been taught by his father and grandfather that, you know, uh, help lead, lead them to their social points of view, but what are the sort of redeeming, like, you know, social and philosophical concerns that are associated with those, with those, uh, points of view that you can see expressed in, in who these people and who these people are. Um, and I think that if we can, on the one hand, continue to refine, build, and scale these sort of active community community building uh, practices that Brave Rangers and other folks are pioneering, while also ultimately building up sort of a media and a messaging architecture to help sort of uh, amplify and broadcast the stories that come from the heart of the American experience on different, uh, from across the spectrum. Uh, the sort of cumulative effect of all that is creating a larger ecosystem in which the culture of the nation can begin to shift. And we can begin to realize that if you're getting only half the story with respect to what America is, you're not getting any of the story at all in some sense. Um, And so building that counter, that cultural counterforce becomes itself a, 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 a countercultural revolution, if you will, but of a unifying variety, right? And uh, truth is, is there's there are, the obstacles are obvious, but ultimately there's no reason why that can't happen. And the the one thing that ought to give us some confidence that it probably will happen at some point is that the fact that Americans like you and me and many other folks actually do see the need for this. The question is just how do we untangle the knots that are already tied by our current sort of relationships to powerful polarizing uh, institutions and our current confusion over these different narratives. But, you know, the, the, the growth of the intellectual dark web space, uh, for one, the, uh, the, the flowering of this still small but real and substantive kind of depolarization environment in which I work, the presence of figures like, you know, Cornel West uh, on the left and, you know, Robbie B. George uh, on the right. And, you know, even look at Van Jones and, and the lengths that he's gone to work with uh, folks in Trump's America on, on uh, criminal justice reform and sort of advancing the perceptions of our common humanity and even you know a lot of things that glenn beck and ben shapiro have said to sort of like you know point towards the need for us achieving a culture of transcendence in this way it lets you know that there is energy moving in this direction the thing that is unavoidable though 
is the fact that there will be social turmoil and there will be social chaos. There is now. We're going to see more of that inevitably. But, you know, we saw that in the 60s too. What came out of the 60s ultimately through the moral leadership of Dr. King and others uh, was a was a vision and to a great degree a reality of social and racial and 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 philosophical reconciliation across a broad spectrum of american life which has set in stone uh, a moral core uh, a a reinforced moral core to the american conscience at that time with respect to racial issues that frankly has lasted to this current moment you know the problems we have uh are always connected to to history but this idea that you know that uh, that ultimately, you know, our bonds to each other have to transcend our skin color. That was not necessarily a mainstream uh, position, you know, for most of American history. It is today, and so you know, these types of leaps forward in our ethical consciousness are not only possible; they have happened, and even happened in relatively recent history. They can't happen again. A lot of people who aren't super familiar with Martin Luther King can often forget that one of his last projects was bringing working men and women together in a multiracial project right before he was assassinated. And I agree that we are, we are much closer in many ways, despite what the media might have us believe otherwise. Yeah, that project was to achieve uh, employment uh, for, you know, for, for, for Americans, jobs and opportunity. He had shifted to a very sort of square, uh, confronting of you know uh, economic uh, inequality um and uh yeah it was was moving in a strong labor direction there was something that you you mentioned and and you have used this phrase several times and it stuck out to me because i come originally from a christian background i guess i would currently be considered agnostic but you keep mentioning a, a phrase bear witness to someone uh, who might come from a different political tribe than you do and i'm mostly familiar with this phrase in a religious context, uh, in my upbringing as a, as a Christian. And that kind of brings me to, I don't know what other way to say it, in a measured and, and eloquently uh, written essay you wrote for Braver Angels magazine. Um, it was entitled, uh, There Are Evils Worse Than Racism. You wrote, quote, the anti-racist and politically correct activism of our modern moment, as it applies to our mainstream cultural conversation, has the effect of foreclosing forgiveness and redemption, not just for true crimes rooted in prejudicial hatred, but also for mere social trespasses, end quote. And a little later, you wrote, quote, it is legitimate to find prejudice offensive, but if society does not reward those who repent and seek forgiveness for their prior perspectives, what incentive is there for those seized with racist attitudes to abandon them, end quote. And I feel that there is a rather stunning disconnect happening in a lot of folks who describe themselves as liberal or left of center, which I would personally identify as, between their views on criminal justice on the one hand and prison reform, and their views on issues of racism or sexism or bigotry, prejudice, right? Mm. On the one hand, they can see the need, the very real need, and in my opinion, they rightly advocate for rehabilitation, grace, forgiveness, right? For the drug dealer, the thief, the murderer. They understand that a society functions truly well only if it doesn't cast these men and women aside like garbage for a lifetime, you know, as if they are defined only by their regrettable and even sometimes heinous acts, that they can become better, that they can be better. Uh, and they understand that we as a nation should strive to help them get there, right? That it's part of the social contract. But this grace that is extended for the thief and for the murderer, whether it's real or occasionally on social media performative, 
It's not extended to the bigot, right? It's not extended to the racist or even someone who isn't racist to their core, but perhaps said a racist thing in anger or error or you know, what have you. What are your thoughts on this? And how can we get closer to a society where we offer grace to both the burglar and the bigot? <laughs> That's well said. Uh, Sam Harris uh, has, uh, yeah, he's remarked on this uh, irony wherein it seems like uh, in in the quarters that you mentioned, at least, there's this phenomenon where the the more uh, heinous your uh, your transgression, the more uh, the more eligible you ultimately are, perhaps for forgiveness and redemption for, you know, you can be, um, uh, you know, a person like a Christian a Picciolini, for instance, uh, who I've, uh, uh, who I've spoken to, uh, before, uh, who, uh, the yeah, former, uh, uh, former neo-Nazi who, uh, you know, brutalized people early in his life, but who, uh, you know, turned his life around and, uh, now of course works tirelessly to, uh, to uh, liberate other people from the psychological, uh, you know, uh, chains of the white supremacist, I mean, the, the, the explicit and deep white supremacist ideology. But if you are, you know, I guess a public figure who says something uh, off color, or even, a, you know, there's a professor I saw in a, a tweet who apparently has been uh, suspended. Uh, USC? Yeah, is that right? He was making... Uh, uh, he's a, like a linguist, I think, and he was sort of <laughs> demonstrating how I, I don't know. I guess the difference between different, you know, phonetic uh, sounds in different languages. So he was just demonstrating different syllables, and he got to saying uh, in speaking a Mandarin or something. He started using the sound at nega, which I guess you know, I guess is a is a it's a it's a filler word. Um, there, it's basically the 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 Mandarin or Cantonese equivalent of um or er or uh russell peters who um is a comedian uh, out of canada and actually a super popular comedian among asian communities in canada america abroad he has an entire bit mm. on this about when he he i believe he was visiting china for the first time and i think he was he was at some fast food place and uh it was his very first time uh hearing that filler word right which sounds very similar to uh the n-word but of course, but of course, it's not. It goes back, mm -hmm. you know, decades, if not hundreds of years in this language. And when you first hear it, of course, it is it is very jarring, but it has absolutely nothing to do with, you know, the terrible word that has a deep history here. Right. Um, but, you know, you're absolutely right. This USC professor was put on leave because students in his class who are black said that it caused them mental trauma. Yeah, precisely. I'm glad that you know this uh, story. Well, I was going to give a very clumsy representation of that. Um, yeah. Uh, so yes, there is this, there's this irony. Um, and so, and, and it's a deeply, uh, damaging, uh, sort of pathology now in the way we, uh, in, in, in the way we treat each other, the way we evaluate, uh, each other. Um, but you started off, of course, by saying that, you know, on the other hand, it is holy, it is holy good thing. I think, uh, that, we should at least, you know, have this instinct to say that when people do things of a criminal nature, there nevertheless ought to, you know, tend to be a pathway for redemption, the availability of grace and forgiveness. I get here's the here's the here's the uh, the headline for me, and you quoted my um, my uh, essay uh, there. 
Um, yes, I think that the kind of anti-racist uh, philosophy by which folks are seeking to advance a certain type of race-conscious society has the effect, even if it's not necessarily the intention all the time, of foreclosing um, uh, forgiveness and redemption in part because it is not made although you know if you read rob if you read uh white fragility if you read robin d'angelo she will certainly make the point uh, and it is to her credit um, that people who have uh sort of uh and this is all white people by the way from d'angelo's perspective uh a racist perspective does not mean that they are not good people she makes that point but when you see people who are speaking from an anti-racist posture um the emphasis that comes across uh is that what is really demanded of you know in this case of white people in particular is kind of uh, a preemptive kind of contrition for the fact, and it is a fact in their point of view, uh, that they are racist and they have certain sorts of problematic uh, perspectives. And if that contrition is not offered, and if they transgress sort of, you know, the new norms that we would like to insist upon in terms of their social uh, behavior, um, if they do not offer themselves in sort of a self-flagellating sort of, you know, prostration, then you know their position in society um ought to be sort of you know sacrificed for this greater for this greater good of uh you know larger larger racial uh, uh, equity and 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 combating racism um and uh you know that gives people a sense of license which is you know very obviously expressed in twitter but we've seen twitter sort of you know my friend Brett Weinstein I think probably put it this way we've seen twitter spill out into the real world and in very conspicuous ways uh it's you know it's not to delegitimize the protest to say that we've seen the worst of twitter sort of spring to life in portland and seattle i think and other other places in that in that manner of course we've seen it spring to life you know in the white house uh too in 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 other ways and you know it's all thing to be said there but the um emphasis is not placed on the idea that um even if you believe that there is an implicit bias that basically makes all white people complicit in racism. And that's not quite my position. It's not my position. Although I do think that there is such a thing as implicit bias that's universal, more or less, in human nature, that we all have to transcend. Um, but even if that is your position, the idea that there's there can be good in people in that, uh, in that uh, state of mind uh, is put forward as something of a... A, an almost, um, I mean, I think she's honest in this, but it still comes across as an almost begrudging kind of like concession from uh, Robin DiAngelo and other anti-racist uh, thinkers. Um, but the idea that there is innate uh, human dignity, foulness, um, this concept of personalism, you know, that there's a core dignity and goodness to be touched, to be spoken to through the vehicle of love for your fellow man, for your oppressor even, right? And perhaps especially, that ethos is at the core of the nonviolent philosophy of Martin Luther King Jr. and Bayard Rustin and others, a philosophy which very much deliberately echoes and amplifies uh, Christian themes of grace uh, and mercy and forgiveness. 
um, and redemption, you know, as well as teachings of Gandhi, and it has, has other sources as well. Um, and that emphasis is so vital and so missing in the anti-racist sort of perspective because it's it blowing past the just the, the whatever the logic or rationale may be behind the social or political program being advocated in in that in any particular ideology you know when you signal the fact that hey you and i are about to have a meaningful sort of you know interaction or even confrontation on the subject of a social question and i am and you know dr king is always sort of the greatest example of this I am oh John Lewis too though. Uh, I am not going to hold back in speaking the moral truth to you as I see it, right? And you've got a lot of emphasis on truth telling in the anti-racist movement. But part of the truth that King articulated was that nevertheless, you are my brother, and the aim and goal uh, of my telling you the truth is to be able for is to set the stage for us to be reconciled uh, to each other. For us both to embrace truth together uh, at the end of the day uh, and to walk together in brotherhood and friendship, right? You are my brother and I see your humanity. That is the emphasis of the nonviolent philosophy and the framing within which that truth telling takes place. Um, there is, I think, some sort of lip service played to some of that in the anti-racist uh, literature, but it is not the emphasis. The emphasis is on people's need to kind of submit to the demands of the ideology in the name of submitting to truth. And so the authoritarian kind of overtones of that, that some people uh, perceive, it's pretty easy for me to see what people are responding to in that um, and why it and there, there are a number of other reasons, but why uh, it provokes such a, you know, such a uh, kind of defensive uh, reaction. And it's interesting because the spectrum of reactions to kind of the anti-racism um, movement seems to be on the one hand, if you accept it, you accept it in this way of sort of prostrating yourself before it and sort of flagellating yourself for your sins and, and kind of a self uh and sort of a self-immolation, which is a bit strange. You know, it, it doesn't seem like it's a healthy or particularly graceful thing. Uh, you know, the 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 pathology of white guilt is a real thing, and um, you know, I, I, I think it, white guilt can be a pathology, or it can be kind of a, <laughs> it could just be a healthy recognition of the fact that look, as a people collectively, you know, um, yeah, we've got a history that has led to some terrible human outcomes. And even if I didn't do what my grandparents did, you know, I admire anybody who says, let me take it upon my own shoulders to make right what, you know, maybe my ancestors uh, made wrong or what my country made wrong in the past. That is noble and good, I think. But um, this sort of, you know, but there's a, there's a level, there's a level down from that, you know, that is, I think, strange and unhealthy. So you get that reaction on the side of many folks who would want to call themselves allies, or you get many other folks who look at this whole program as, again, being authoritarian in a way that is not only brutish, but that defies logic. And so they either tune out these arguments or they perhaps run into the arms of President uh, Trump or, or worse still, and much worse still, you know, maybe even Richard Spencer, you know, I mean, I don't even need to name names, just sort of the larger kind of, you know, 
racial right uh, on the far end and so forth. And so it, it, it makes, um, to that degree at least, it makes the impact of the anti-racist program uh, destructive and counterproductive uh, in many respects. Um, you know, um, and so the what needs to arise uh, is, I think, uh, a moral program that revives the ethos of nonviolence, that revives the substance of nonviolence, as Dr. King uh, represented it, uh, in our moral conscience as a nation, in the way that we engage our, our ethical, uh, social, and political differences. And that, of course, as I said, flows largely uh, from what is demonstrated in the gospel itself, you know? Um, and you said that you're a Christian who became an agnostic. I was an agnostic who became a Christian. So that's, that's, uh, interesting. One would like to think that the church could play a constructive role in that process. And the church itself has become polarized and politicized in a way to where certainly among, uh, so many, I think, conservative evangelicals and so forth, the emphasis has been on supporting political movements and figures who would protect the political program of the church without necessarily demonstrating in its broad social discourse um, the healing and reconciliatory uh, sort of, you know, moral power that Dr. King uh, represented that flows from Christ, right? That, that flows from, again, sort of the substance and the teaching uh, of, of the gospel. Uh, there is there is this watering down of the uh, of the mission of the church into something that is more political than it is spiritual in in many respects and so you know this breakdown that we see it's not just a matter of the anti anti racists on the left i mean i think that there's issues with with uh, the church including uh, the conservative leaning um uh church uh, in america but Still, the power of love, as is expressed in this nonviolent philosophy, imbued in sort of civic activities that allow us to transform our internal relationships to one another, augmented through the sorts of practices that we set in place and braver angels flowing up into sort of a flourishing kind of media culture, perhaps beginning in the digital space that we're already seeing the growth of or the evidence of the beginnings of in different parts of the digital uh, landscape. Um, there is a there is a path, you know, uh, for a, a tree of life of sorts to, to grow uh, in this uh, in this uh, movement uh, that can, you know, bear some fruits towards uh, uh, spiritual and moral and uh, you know, uh, ethical uh, transformation in the heart of the uh, in the heart of the American people, so that we can begin to see each other for who we really are, past the politics, right? Uh, to to sort of understand that you know, if you're progressive or conservative, we all have some moral and intellectual instincts that, if we take the best of each other, allow us to build something that is bigger and better than the sum of its parts. You know, and really, that is you know, in a way, kind of what brought, you know, this country uh, uh, into into being um, on, an, on the idealistic uh, level, you know, 
the constitutional process on and so forth for all of the surrounding uh, travesties and tragedies, you know, uh, these were men who had to band together in a difficult moment to build something on the basis of the best of what they saw in each other and each other's philosophies while putting aside, you know, sort of the worst in each other's, uh, in each other's uh, uh, instincts and sorts of, you know, lower natures, if you will. And it wasn't a perfect project. And whatever I'm describing here isn't going to be a perfect project either. The question is, do we move forward or do we move backwards? And I do think that there's a path uh, to moving forward that preserves the promise ultimately of the uh, American project. And um, I think we ought to be committed to that. John, what I love about the way that you, you answer questions, the way that you pose questions, whether it's on other people's podcasts or on your own, <laughs> which I also, I think from a selfish perspective, find uh, frustrating is that mm-hmm. each of your, each of your responses, everything that you say, if you could see the chicken scratch that I've been writing throughout the course of this discussion, <laughs> there's so many branches that I would just absolutely love to go down. <laughs> you know, you, there's this saying with, uh, with Guinness, right? Guinness drinks like a meal, mm-hmm. right? And, and every time I, uh, I listen to you talk about a given subject, it feels like uh, I'm at a buffet and there's just food that's being piled onto my plate and I'm both excited and wondering how I can eat it all. I could literally continue this conversation with you if we had unlimited time for hours on end, because I think that you've imparted a lot of wisdom today. And uh, where can people find you online? Um, and, and are there any other recommendations outside of even your own projects that you'd like to steer people towards? Yes. Well, thank you very much. It really has been a, a pleasure and a good way to to start the morning. And so, yeah, well, uh, I would love for folks uh, to keep in touch with me on Twitter, as you said, uh, at John R. Wood Jr. That is, you know, Jr. is in J.R. Um, and uh, if, uh, yeah, if moved to do so, uh, please uh, check out Braver Angels and join us and join us as a member if you can at braverangels.org. Um, but I would also like to give a shout out to uh, my friend Pierce Godwin at the National Conversations Project, who who's doing um, good community building work, working with a variety of different uh, organizations. My friend Debelin Molyneux at the, uh, at the uh, uh, Bridge Alliance. Um, and, um, oh goodness, they're just, they're so many folks uh, in the broader space worth mentioning. Uh, Joan Blades was the founder of moveon.org, but she has an organization called Living Room Conversations, which does uh, terrific uh, uh, convening work. Um, check out Matt Kibbe's podcast on the blaze. Uh, if you're looking for a libertarian or, you know, other right-leaning conservative commentators who also have a heart for kind of seeing what is human, humane in the, you know, in the perspectives of, of the opposition, Matt Kibbe is a person, uh, to, uh, to, to get behind and, and follow, you know, the, uh, that community is out there, man. Folks are coming together because the move, the the moment is going to demand the movement, right? So, I've got no doubt that it'll come. To people out there who heard John earlier mentioning the the Zoom calls that Braver Angels is doing in 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 lieu of being able to meet in person, let me put your mind at ease. I have been on many, 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 many Zoom calls, as I'm sure so many of us have over the last half a year. Way, way too many Zoom calls, and yet. The Zoom calls that I've been on with Braver Angels in which they, they get people together from across the political spectrum, either on a local level or, or on a national stage where they'll have people from opposite sides of an issue discuss it. Um, they'll have hundreds of people on a, on a Zoom call, which I, I know can, can be triggering <laughs> for some people who've maybe been on too many of a conference call as of late. But 
let me just say that it is it is my favorite way to Zoom. It is by far the the best thing, in my opinion, to come out of the Zoom platform in 2020. So please, please do check that out. The final question to wrap out our chat, the thing that I that I ask everyone at the end of the show, we're limited, um, I think, as individuals in all sorts of ways, right? We're limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned person can't be thinking of every individual, can't be thinking of every group of people all the time. It's impossible. Is there someone, John, or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer more empathy to? That is a, that is a, great, a great question. <laughs> this is going to sound like a bit of a joking uh, response, but you know, I'm a, I'm a father. I have uh, three young kids, uh, nine, five, and uh, uh, three now, uh, Elijah, Jeremiah, and Abigail. And uh, I, I work so much and I'm so consistently kind of like dedicated to sort of just the things I've described uh, to you that I can find my patience running short for for my children. Um, and I can become a bit short-tempered in a way that would make me seem like a bit of a hypocrite to people who listen to me talk about the need to be patient and empathetic with everybody else. But it makes me think that in addition to my own children, um, you know, having having empathy for uh, the children, you know, adolescents uh, uh, in, you know, in this country, they're growing up in a very strange time, not just because of the social turmoils we're seeing, but because of the way in which uh, technology is framing sort of the landscape of their reality. And even though it's easy to poke fun at some of the ideological excesses that you see coming from young people, maybe stoked by some of their elders and, you know, <laughs> the Academy or entertainment or wherever else. But um, there is, you know, nevertheless, I think a strong urge towards uh, reclaiming uh, a life of meaning, you know, uh, that is expressing itself in, in social activism and whatnot, um, that speaks well of you know, this younger generation and speaks well of something in the heart of America. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I look at my kids and I know that they're going to want to find meaning in their own lives too. And so for me, being patient with uh, them now is the only way I can kind of be a good guide uh, to them, you know. And so not looking at the young people in our society as like obstacles to what it is we want to do, but you know, young people are always going to be misguided in one way or the other, just like old people are for that matter. But, you know, being willing to look at, uh, you know, even your most wild-eyed, like, young activists and so forth, your niece, your nephew, or whatever, as still being, you know, somebody who is capable of growing, capable of maturing, and ultimately kind of, you know, leading a, a beautifully renewed nation, uh, you know, that's that's something that we... We want to master the empathy that can allow us to see them uh, in that way. And so, uh, you know, your question took me a little bit by surprise, but that's, that's my honest answer. Well, thank you for sharing that, John. And thank you for joining us. It's been a, it's been a real joy having you today. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. 